Join us for the Criterion Institute podcast as Joy Anderson, a global thought leader in business and social change, leads us through a series of discussions, interviews, frameworks, rants, and reframes that will help you better understand how to use finance as a tool for transformative systems change. I am Joy Anderson, and this is the Criterion Institute podcast. There's a common belief that when we're creating something, we need to know specifically what to look for and how it will contribute to our end creation. In this episode, we flip this assumption on its head and focus instead on the possibilities that can emerge when we allow ourselves to wander around looking for nothing in particular. The first segment will discuss how this concept can benefit the field of innovative finance as we seek to improve the way we identify how a variety of social, racial, gender issues connect to finance. The second segment will illustrate this concept in action, drawing from a personal story about a scholar conducting research in Rwanda that unlocked insights and potential solutions for how the U.S. system of healthcare is financed. And finally, I talk with a special guest, my father, Herbert Anderson, an influential theologian, about the concept of wonder and how it can lead to curiosity, imagination, even astonishment, and how that can help each of us unlock new possibilities and welcome the unexpected and inexplicable things into our world. We don't always know what we're looking for. In fact, given the work that many of us do in the world to create new things, If you don't know what you're creating, you don't know how to look for it. And so you have to be patient with a kind of open-ended exploration, kind of wandering around. And there's just so much of the creative process of discovering what's possible in the world that is about wandering around looking for nothing in particular. So there's a... uh, movie that plays this out. It's a movie called The Zero Effect. It stars Bill Pullman. He's like a kind of a detective who takes too much speed. It's a bit of a cult movie. Um, but anyway, so Bill Pullman playing this detective who's taking too much speed. I don't know why that's important, but it's kind of the plot of the movie. So he's sitting, but he's brilliant, right? Like somehow the drug-induced state makes him brilliant in some remarkable way. So he's in this in this room And his colleague looks at him and says, what are we looking for? He says, the thing about looking for things is that if you're looking for something in particular, you'll likely never find it because there are so many things in the world. But if you're not looking for anything in particular, you'll find something because there are so many things in the world. So how this applies to using finance as a tool for social change. At some level, we have not yet begun to do the work to figure out how to connect social patterns, social inequities, gender patterns, racial patterns, patterns of social systems, social structures, 
we don't actually have a ton of practice figuring out how to connect that to analysis in finance. We just don't. I remember a couple of years ago, I was, I was speaking at an event and this white haired dude said to me, Joy, if looking at gender in finance was so very important, the very smart people on Wall Street would have already figured it out. I didn't actually even know how to respond to that because the reality is, no, no, they wouldn't because they're not looking and they're not looking because they're not trained to look. It took a very long time for people to infiltrate into systems of finance knowledge about the environment and climate change and the importance of looking at that and seeing that as part of how you evaluated opportunities and risks and incorporated that into your analysis, that took decades of work. And we're, we're moving along in the same paths in terms of looking at social injustices and social inequities, social patterns, like gender patterns and, and others and how they play out in finance. But we're really early days. And so at some point, what we need to start with is assuming there's lots out there. There's lots of connections out there. There are ways that we can explore finding connections. And if you assume those are connections are out there, then the process of wandering around and discovering them is much more open. If you start in a very particular place and say, here I am, I'm looking at this company in this moment in time, tell me how gender is relevant at this moment. That's sometimes hard because you're already in a very specific thing and you're saying, spot the gender problem right now. Now, many of us can actually do that and look at a situation and, and do an analysis, but it's kind of an on the spot, find something here. And so what I think is really important about the stage that we're at right now in gender lens investing and some of these other fields looking at tying social inequities with finance is that we need to be wandering around and looking for things, not having a sort of forced test of can you find it in this moment. So how does one go about wandering around and looking for nothing in particular? The key is stay open, listen, stay in a discovery mode, move outside of your normal pathways, right? This is always true in processes of innovation. You need to step out of the places that you're looking right now. If you read a set of journals that are currently not talking about gender patterns or social patterns, then you're not likely to hear the interesting ideas in those existing sources of information. So go someplace else, try other places. Curiosity is central. Don't assume you know yet. Just come from a place of curiosity. This is not about expertise and being confident that I know everything. We're at a moment when we are trying to discover the things that have not yet been found. So curiosity, a sense of wonder, a sense of, I wonder if that's connected. I wonder what's possible. Let's see if there's something that could be connected there. That kind of openness that comes with deep curiosity. And the final thing is listen for patterns. Again, we're looking for not just random things that would connect between these two fields. We're looking for patterns. What's coming up repeatedly? How do we, in our wandering around, tune into, oh, 
that keeps coming up as an issue. I remember traveling in Southeast Asia and sitting in traffic and sitting in traffic and sitting in traffic and thinking time poverty and traffic. Wonder if there's some opportunities here, right? So again, trying to play out what are the patterns that you're seeing? And then could we actually take that one step farther? What are the connections between time poverty that's connected to a gendered experience and traffic and what? What kinds of businesses are going to be affected by those two patterns? And then how do we integrate that in? So starting with a place of, of wonder and curiosity and a desire to discover the world And then stepping back and saying, how do we find out how that's relevant to finance? And maybe it's not. But over time, building that base of listening and learning in context and seeing what's happening is how we'll get to the new insights. So go out and forage. A quick story. In middle of the aughts, so around 2006, we were working with lots of healthcare administrators as part of pension funds in the faith-based world, and many of them were also healthcare administrators for the clergy that were in their denomination. And this issue of medical debt just kept coming up in even places where there were good if not perfect, good insurance programs in place, normal people were experiencing excessive amounts of medical debt. In fact, at that time, medical debt was the highest single cause of bankruptcy in the United States. And in that, we're not really talking about the uninsured who had a heart attack and spent three weeks in the hospital. Medical debt was driven by those who had deductibles of $500, $1,000, $2,500. We all know what the deductibles are out there. So for those who were insured, they were racking up medical debt, right? These were well-insured clergy that we were running into who had good insurance plans but couldn't afford a $500 deductible, particularly when it happens in like December of one year, and then the health event continues into the January of the next year, and all of a sudden you have $1,000 that you owe in the course of one two-month period really hard on a salary of $50,000 to find $1,000 out of the wind. The reality is that those who were uninsured, the cost that they would pay in cash for an event could be three to five times the cost of that same service for those who were insured. What we were figuring out here was that cash, out-of-pocket cash, was not valued in a system of healthcare that was completely focused on insurance. Because insurance was the dominant financial system continues to be in the United States, the dominant financial system for how we cover healthcare, cash, literally 20 bucks out of my pocket handed to somebody else who then gets that 20 bucks. All of the things that are value about the time value of money, how cash is immediate, were not valued in the healthcare system. Still today, not valued. And so we were looking at this question 
of how do we understand a better way of valuing cash? And we were in the midst of a, a pretty big project. Rockefeller Foundation had funded it. We were doing lots of sort of big round tables. But the breakthrough actually came in a meeting with somebody from the Brookings Institute. She was doing a significant amount of research in Rwanda on healthcare systems in Rwanda. And I had this meeting over a lunch in DC, and it had nothing to do with our work on healthcare in the United States. I just happened to meet this woman who worked at the Brookings Institute. We had a delightful conversation. In the midst of that conversation, she said, well, I'm working to change the cash market in healthcare to be more of an insurance market. It occurred to me in that moment that we were trying to take a system of healthcare driven by insurance to have a more logical cash market. And so wrote a bunch of white papers, put together a new venture, you know, sort of ran with that idea for the next couple of years of our lives to figure out how would you create a cash market in the system of U.S. finance in healthcare. So the systems by which the U.S. finances healthcare needed to have a more rational cash market. Much more to say about that, white papers to be read. But the point here is that while research processes matter, structural exploration matters, most discoveries are in fact surprises. They come from unexpected places, unexpected conversations. They come from being open, not focused. If I was only somebody who worked in US healthcare finance, I would have taken any time to meet with a think tank person who was working in Rwanda. I wouldn't have taken the time to stay open to wander around, to wonder, because it is in that process of wandering around and wondering that possibilities truly take shape. So I made an invitation to my father, Herbert Anderson, an influential theologian, to reflect with me on some big ideas that have shaped my thinking. And in this conversation, we're going to talk about wonder. I think in, in my mind, wonder connects to imagination, which is so important for thinking about different futures and different ways of being. How do we imagine things that we don't yet see? How can we imagine change? How can we see things fully? But a key part of that is actually understanding difference, understanding a sense of wonder is about being able to see things whole or more or bigger or mm -hmm. yep. against a wide sky, which, which, as we were talking this morning, made us both think about this quote from Wilka that my husband and I included in our wedding booklet. And it was, it was really, we put together this book of quotes that were, we called it an apology for our wedding that sort of named why we were getting married 30 years ago. Um, but in that, this was one of the most important quotes that I think has been emblematic of our marriage. So once the realization is accepted that even between the closest human beings, infinite distances continue to exist. A wonderful living side by side can grow up if they succeed in loving the distance between them, which makes it possible for each to see the other whole and against 
a wide sky. Absolutely. I, I've stolen that quote and used it muchly over the years, partly because it's about seeing the other whole, about honoring distance and difference in ways that make it possible to appreciate the other. But in the process, I've come to discover the significance of wonder and wonder that leads to curiosity. Wonder mixes with astonishment and curiosity to make it possible for us to anticipate the unexpected or to live towards the unexpected or the inexplicable. But wonder also diminishes the abuse or the misuse of people by inviting a respect for the worth of every individual, to see the other whole and against a wide sky. If one could do that with everyone, violence towards women, violence towards one another would be diminished. But learning how to practice wonder, and that's the theme we've been talking about in these podcasts. I mean, all of the big ideas about living interdependently and living imaginatively, living with vulnerability, all of these things don't happen overnight. They don't come to us just by deciding. They come through practice, through day by day, seeing something new. Yesterday morning, a friend of mine walked to the seven, we have seven breakfast gathering it's from seven to nine. And he leaves his house and it's about a 20, it's about a 30 minute walk. But he starts in the dark, in the fog, in the valley, in Sonoma, and then watches the sun come through the fog. And he said, it was astonishing. Mm-hmm. That's about wonder. It's not about shock and awe. Mm-hmm. That's a different thing. And one, we have to be careful because wonder can, can be abused. But most of all, wonder will give us a sense of possibility, of newness, of imagination. Um, but all of that is, is predicated on a kind of practice. And I want to suggest that there are some things we can, that, that come from paying attention to wonder. One of them is humility. Wonder presupposes humility. It presupposes a kind of disposition that will be less arrogant and more respectful toward whomever we regard as the other, whoever and whatever we regard as somebody other than. And I think, secondly, a willingness to struggle because wonder presupposes a kind of having and not having. The sun coming up through the fog is not something you possess. It's something you experience and you see, and then it's gone. Wonder also presupposes a willingness to be changed about conversations when we see someone in a new way, then we can't think about ourselves in the same way. And that's the risky part. If we are only seeing the other as a project or as something that we can beat or win over, or manipulate. Fix. Fix. That's another, absolutely. Then we won't allow ourselves to be changed. I was remembering recently a conversation that I had in 1963. I was a new minister, single, and this guy came to see me. We had been in seminary together. We'd been in school together. I knew him. He was a year older. He came to talk to me about his homosexuality. 
I didn't know he was gay. We didn't talk about that much then. But I'm enormously grateful for that conversation because it changed my mind, it changed my heart, it changed my thinking forever because I saw him. And when we see others whole, we're never the same again. And that's a risk. That's a risk. And finally, I think wonder leads to gratitude. And gratitude will take us to financial matters very quickly, you know? What do we do? What do we do with all the wonderful gifts that have come to us? I was thinking about that recently. And and so so gratitude, if gratitude is a way that we live, this is maybe more more pious than you want, okay? But you're talking to your father, and so you're going to get it. I think that life lived best is about receiving and expending, receiving and giving, receiving and giving. We don't have our life as a possession. We don't have our money as a possession. If we think we do, we're deluded. It's ours to hold, to manage, to be good stewards of, to make good investments with, to give to whatever what whatever causes we're passionate about. But we don't have, our life is not something we possess. If we start with that conviction, and I don't even have to be a religious, I don't have to be a religious person to hold that. You have to be a smart person to say, I get my life and I give it away. I didn't buy it. Somebody gave it to me. A woman gave it to me out of her body so I can live freely. So what if we invested as if we had wonder? To learn more about our work, visit us at criterioninstitute.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Your reviews help our podcast reach a wider audience. Thanks for listening.